You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion about the Atchafalaya River and Wax Lake Deltas in South Central Louisiana. This particular location is like many other that we could talk about in North America that has historically been really important for waterfowl, but through some combination of factors has seen some dramatic declines in waterfowl abundance. Uh, This particular story has its own unique twist, and we are fortunate to have a couple of guests here that that know this story very well. Uh, These are the two individuals that have joined us for episodes one and two, those being Mike Carlos, Uh, currently working for Ducks Unlimited's Southern Region, but former manager of the Chafalaya Delta Wildlife Management Area, and Larry Reynolds, Waterfowl Program Manager for Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. What I will do at this point is to remind our listeners, if you have not listened to episodes one and two in this series of three, I certainly encourage you to do that because it lays those two episodes, lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the previous episode, we concluded by introducing some of the changes in terms of access to the deltas, the pressure that came with that change in access, brought about by some innovations in technology and uh, outboard watercraft, and then how that change in access and pressure began to influence bird numbers and hunting success. And those episodes were were bolstered quite a bit by the personal stories and experiences of both Larry uh, and Mike. The remaining part of this story, however, is how the agency, in this case, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, back in the day when all this was happening, attempted to manage hunting pressure at the deltas and the complexities and challenges involved in that. But we also want to discuss this issue, that being one of pressure management in a larger context of waterfowl habitat management, because it definitely is important for Uh, what we understand about the waterfowl resource, as well as uh, hunting experiences for those that go afield in pursuit of these birds. So, Mike, let's pick back up with you on this particular topic here. We know that waterfowl and all migratory birds respond to many different factors, ranging from from habitat quality to habitat quantity, weather, uh, and is much of the discussion here, pressure or disturbance, which comes in a variety of forms. The pressure that we're primarily going to be talking about here is hunting disturbance, hunting pressure. What makes this incredibly complex when talking about what happens to why are bird numbers declining in a certain area or why are we seeing bird shifts in one area to the other is that that these factors that influence these things oftentimes do so in an interacting way. It's not just as though one is responsible for it. They oftentimes interact in a number of ways. In this particular situation where we're talking about the Atchafalaya and Wax Lake Deltas, we know that the habitat quality and quantity was still excellent in that location. But the one thing that was changing and changing quite rapidly as we heard in the last episode was access and then the disturbance that came along with that. 
then, of course, the, the birds in those locations began to respond as we might expect them to whenever they are subjected to a fairly high degree of pressure. So, Mike, as manager of the deltas, as you were seeing these changes, knowing how these birds were responding to the increase in pressure that you were seeing, what did you and your agency try to do to better manage some of this? And what were the challenges and complexities involved in that? Okay, yeah. So, and I'll backtrack a little bit, Mike, first, just to kind of kind of set the stage a little bit. But I think one of the critical parts, and, and again, I'm biased, right? This is from my perspective and from from what I saw uh, and how I saw it, right? But but it, you know, it's a fact. And in '96, um, you know, me and my staff that that worked there, that were commissioned law enforcement officers, lost those commissions, right? And I won't go into the details of why, but everybody that was non-enforcement division, uh, and that was across the state, a lot of other WMA folks as well, right? So, and we we're on a remote area. We had good rapport with a lot of hunters. They knew we were going to be around for late shooting, right? It was a pretty easy case to make if you could set up on them. Flat land, you could find where they were shooting. You could set up, watch it, you know. And we had it, We had it. you know, I will say it was, it was pretty well contained. Um, made some cases, but uh, anyway, so that kind of set some of it. Um, and then we saw that change, right? Uh, with every all the other changes, we saw that um, in terms of and you know enforcement and look nothing. I'm friends with a lot of those guys, and but that's a tough place to be and a tough place to go. And to say you're going to be out there daily or whatever, it just you know doesn't happen or even weekly. And you know word got out and we started you know we'd get complaints and you know we would you know while still doing bag checks and hear all of that and of course hear it from from our headquarters, right? Right there on the main Delta, uh, the late shooting and whatever. And um, so that added to that. But again, everything else, and, and I may be getting a bit off track, um, it, it, it was it was depressing to see that. Uh, and, and you could tell it was, you know, the changes were not gonna um, go away. It was only gonna get worse. So the, the 2007, the, the big thing that finally, well, I would say before that, and I don't even know what year we did that. And Larry, you've got such a good memory, you may remember, but I proposed closing it at noon on opening weekends of both splits just to do something, um, right? Cause that was the bulk of the people coming in. Um, you had a lot of that, not that they, it wasn't busy the rest of the season, but that, you know, we'd really see those surges on opening weekend. So we did that. We got that passed easily. Nobody fought it. Um, and that was, I want to say that was somewhere in the mid nineties, uh, but I don't remember exactly when, but that we knew that wasn't enough. Right. Uh, and then in 2007, I mean, I had long left the Delta. I'd still hunt there occasionally. Um, and, but, you know, and I knew a lot of people and they said, man, can we do something? And and one guy that hunted there a lot had a house with this and man, we got it. Y'all got to please try to do something. Can't we close it at two o'clock? And I said, well, we can try. And, and we tried um, and we had to do public meetings. I think four of them, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, and I gave a presentation on it and you know, and the people that were going to be most impacted were the houseboat guys. And of course, this is the rare thing about Chaffly Delta that adds to all of that. 
And again, this is where we can go on and on. So cut me off if I'm going too long, Mike. But, um, you know, a Chafali Delta allowed houseboats from the start. Now, early on, back in the days when I was doing enforcement work there, before I was assigned there, there were three houseboats and I had one of them as a, you know, as a state little bitty 14 foot flat, those houseboats, there were three of them on both, pretty much on both deltas for the most part. And then that was again, late eighties, early nineties. And then that changed to, we ended up issuing from 80 to 90 or 80 to a hundred permits for houseboats. Well, you know, magnify that, right. And that's between the two deltas, about 60 of them on the wax, say 50 or 40 on the main delta. Um, so those guys, you know, when you start talking about, limiting their hunting and what they had known for years, that was a big impact. And they were the big voice. And, you know, I'll just say without getting into too much detail, but you can read between the lines. Um, it didn't fly essentially. Right. Got beat up, got shredded, got, got abandoned. <laughs> and, you know, it kind of irked me because I didn't, I didn't hunt there as much anymore, but I knew what was happening. And I'm like, what about the resources guys? What about our mission statement, you know, and politics prevail and, and that's how it was. And the interesting thing I will say to all of that is since I've been with DU, I've had, I think two people uh, that were some of the guys that beat me up in these public meetings, call me and say that I was right. So, Hey, if there was anything, you know, and I didn't want to gloat too much, but boy, I did for a minute, you know, and I tried not to, to waylay into them too badly, but, uh, you know, that's what it became. And, and, um, and yes, pressure is one thing. And two of the commenters in the emails, said that that was the main thing it was pressure period pressure well you know larry's article and tom mormon's article in the wildlife insider about all the other factors across the country surely that all has a lot to play into it but the one thing i look at on a chafalaya delta that was different are houseboats and then you can look you can compare to Pasalu that does not have the pressure because it's so remote and much more treacherous in the Atchafalaya River with the ships in the in the Mississippi River. And you look at those numbers and they were like, what, 78,821 birds in that same survey in November. You know, and I spent a lot of time hunting Pasalu. And, uh, you know, and it's a phenomenal area. It's a degrading delta. It's not nearly as nice, but it's huge. And you got Delta National Wildlife Refuge just to the north of it. So, you know, it's holding, it still holds birds. And Passalute, for those that may not be aware, is is off on the at the off the main stem or at the the mouth of the Mississippi River, uh, off to the southeast. And so it's an area that that is still, uh, although at a well, I, I guess a different scale from what it it occurred historically, but still pretty darn big um, as it occurred. It's still there are some some deltaic processes still in effect there it's producing some of the same food resources some of the same vegetation as we see at the uh, the chafalaya and wax lake delta i think that was your point there mike but the fact that it is much more remote and you have to access it by way of the mississippi river which is a whole different animal i've been on it as well a couple of times and yeah it is not for the faint of heart you and your dog are a team Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient. 
and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Either. Larry, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because, of course, you are uh, the waterfowl program manager there for Louisiana and disturbance and the management of disturbance, either through the establishment of inviolate sanctuary or the regulation of shooting hours, probably has to be one of the more contentious aspects or controversial aspects of of your job when you get into those discussions. I'm not sure exactly where those authorities lie, if that if that uh, rests more with the managers of those areas, but I, I know you think about it a lot. I know you're involved in, in some of the discussions, but you know, that's as Mike has talked about here, perfect example of how he fought for what he thought back in the day was best for the resources based on what he saw happening to those waterfowl behaviors, those waterfowl numbers, but the pressure against the recommendations that he was providing, which necessarily was restricting some hunting opportunities, at least in terms of the times and number of, of hunting opportunities, uh, not necessarily equating that to hunt quality. That's one of the key things that as we go forward in this discussion as waterfowl managers, we need to be, to se- we need to be able to separate hunting opportunity from hunting quality. Um, but Larry, is this one of the more challenging aspects of your job uh, as a waterfowl manager? It is the single most challenging aspect of my job, Mike. Um, all of us wildlife majors here that managing wildlife is so much easier than managing people. And it doesn't matter what you propose. I'm going to be more militant than Mike, but I sat in the I'm, I sat in the crowd and I watched him get pe- get beat up, and I've seen him get beat up on a, a number of issues. And my other colleagues that manage these WMAs face the same problems. No matter what you do, I don't care what it is, if it restricts someone's opportunity, it is going to be a major issue. And you're going to hear things that are just outrageous. When we established the first limited access areas on the WAX and on the main delta in 2010, and those limited access areas were puny. They were less than 10% of the habitat. But I watched an older gentleman with a cane hobble up to the podium to speak to the commission and point to his grandchildren and say, if you do this, I will not be able to take those young people hunting. It gets crazy when when we want to restrict access or restrict opportunity on the basis of improving habitat or improving the hunting experience. And we're, we're sort of evolving. Um, one of the things I've done at Wildlife and Fisheries is, is done large-scale waterfowl hunter opinion surveys. And those are showing a growing interest in limiting access to WMAs, hunting four days a week. Our lottery hunts at Sherburne have far more people applying than, than we can uh, satisfy. And so... We know there's demand for this. We know there's a portion 
of the waterfowl hunting community that favor restricting access to improve the quality of the hunting experience. But it's incredibly difficult to accomplish when you work in a system where, like at public meetings, very few people show up at public meetings and they're the ones that have a particular ax to grind or are mad enough to come out of their house and come to the meeting. And so it makes it, it makes it very difficult. And, and I actually learned a lot professionally watching Mike Carlos getting his Buhan handed to him at public meetings, trying to do what he could to maintain the waterfowl hunting experience on some of these WMAs. Well, I just I got to say thanks, Larry, and and I, and I remember that same old gentleman at that commission meeting, and and I, I guess I got caught up in the the two o'clock closure in two thousand seven and forgot what we proposed with the limited access areas. And you're right, and it was puny, but that's all we could get out of you know the staff then. But but it was a step, you know. But uh, but you're right. You're absolutely right, Larry. And that was a humbling experience, and I don't have patience like that anymore. Um, I don't know how I contain myself, to be honest with you. Larry, do we? Can you speak to the limited access uh, that remains, or if there is any limited access there at the Deltas? Where does that stand at, at this time? Well, we're actually uh, the reason I use the term evolving is uh, the first limited access areas were were implemented under Mike Carlos's leadership. Um, in coastal operations for those uh, those WMAs um, at Atchafalaya Delta. Uh, we since have expanded that. We now have pro- approximately 20% of the main delta and the wax delta are now in limited access areas, which, which just means no internal combustion engines. You have to, you have to park your boat and you have to walk or, or paddle. Uh, if you want to hunt those areas, we now have limited access areas um, at uh, at Pointishin, at Pasalutra, uh, at Dewey Wills, uh, up by Catahoula Lake, and most of our uh, impoundments on our WMAs in Northeast Louisiana are are also now limited access, and so it's a concept that is is evolving and growing. And I think a lot of it is the justification that we're getting from our hunter opinion surveys, where 35 to 50 percent of our hunters, including deer hunters, um, want to see uh, less motorized access and disturbance to these areas. And, and it's not a big area. I mean, you know, 10, 15 percent of the of these WMAs will be in limited access areas. Um, so I, I think it's a, I think it's a concept that's, that's working fairly well uh, at, at this point. Larry, I might be catching you off guard with this next question. Do you know if you've been, if, if we have any data on kind of differences in, uh, in, in bag checks between the regular areas and limited access areas? Do you do anything like that? On those southeast uh, coastal WMAs, we have collected bag check data from the very beginning on the limited access areas versus the uh, the non-limited access areas, and uh, 
There's a lot of problem with those data, as you know, Mike, because anything that's self-reported, hunters are pretty uh, leery about telling you where they're hunting. But the up until the last couple of years ago, because that that wariness is getting worse and worse all the time. But for many years, for many years, the hunting success, the per hunter hunting success on the limited access areas were was higher than it was on the rest of the area. Now, as you know, Mike, it's really difficult as a scientist to buy into that data unless you have random selection of limited access versus non-limited access, replication. Um, it's, it's difficult to do good quality science on this because the, the easiest way to make the limited access areas look better is to choose the best habitat to put those limited access areas in. So we have not done random, replicated, uh, multiple area studies that's required to be able to definitively say that this is a methodology that works. And in fact, a couple of our guys that work on the area suggest that once you declare an area a limited access area, you automatically increase the hunting pressure on that piece of property because people think that it's going to be better hunting. So we scientifically, we've got a long way to go to validate what we've seen in the bag check data, which is increased per hunter success on the limited access areas. I know that uh, as an organization, we at Ducks Unlimited do not, we're not really in the business of, of managing access on, on the habitat on the habitats that we uh, that we're working on we we don't own really any of those areas we're working on state or federal lands or, or cooperating private landowners and they are the ones that ultimately determine uh, what does and does not happen with regard to hunter access and opportunities but but also as an organization and wanting to understand the ecology of waterfowl and and how this issue of disturbance kind of inter does intersect uh, at at certain larger scales with our ability to provide habitat the, to meet the needs of birds, it's it's a question that we remain interested in. And I kind of framed it up a little while ago that by saying that we it's still one of the most difficult aspects of waterfowl ecology to study to answer the question of how much sanctuary do we as a waterfowl management community need on the landscape at a given scale and in the context of the, all the food resources that may be on that landscape and the amount of hunting pressure. There are so many things that interact um, that interact in that equation, you might say, and and of course, um, any, it's, I guess the point there that I'm trying to make is that we as an organization Although we don't control access on on properties, we remain interested in this question because of its important to, importance to waterfowl ecology and water, waterfowl habitat conservation. I'm confident this is going to be an episode that's very popular. You, the the two of you have provided some very valuable firsthand experiences of an area where I don't think there's any doubt, based on what you've told us and the other folks have told us and described, that uh, waterfowl hunting pressure, in combination with other factors, has played a role in what we've seen with regard to waterfowl patterns, waterfowl abundances there in the Atchafalaya and Wax Lake outlets. Larry, as we close out here, we probably only scratched the surface on some of these topics. And so what I'll, what I'll do here before I ask you one final question, Larry, is encourage our listeners, if 
there are certain parts of this conversation that you want us to dig into more detail on, uh, let us know. Larry, anything that you'd like to leave us with with regard to, I mean, the, either the the management of of uh, hunting disturbance generally, or the these two areas in particular, the Atchafalaya or Wax Lake deltas. You have laid out one of the of the biggest confounded issues that I'm aware of in our profession, because we here in Louisiana we're dealing with the effects of climate change. We're dealing with the effects of habitat degradation. Even here at Atchafalaya Delta, as these as these deltaic marshes build, they change in quality, you know, from the from the early successional stages to the later successional stages. And it and it kind of goes in fits and starts and the increase in technology, the navigation technology. I mean, being able to literally not be able to see where you are and where you're going and still navigate with these magnificent handheld GPS units and these surface drive motors that can get you wherever you need to go rather than being stuck on a, on a sandbar. And the fact that you can hunt all day, uh, seven days a week. Um, it's, it, it's this really complicated dynamic that has no easy solution. But we do know that where there's good habitat quality, more hunting pressure can be tolerated. And where there's poorer habitat quality, less hunting pressure can be tolerated. And that less hunting pressure almost always leads to better per hunter hunting success. And so as a manager, you're trying to keep all these things in your head and make these decisions, make these risky proposals like Mike Carlos made, you know, in the early to mid 2000s, knowing that what you're going to run into is abject opposition. It's one of the difficult things to do, and they can always tell you, prove it. Prove it. Prove that by reducing the hunting opportunity, you are going to increase the hunting quality, the quality of the hunting experience. And that's extremely difficult to do in a sound, statistically valid, scientific framework. And so um, as I talk to hunters, as I talk to other managers, um, I'm always grasping for information that would help me justify reducing hunting opportunity to increase the quality of the hunting experience. And Mike, final question to you. You kind of Larry's talked about the here in his current job, the challenge of providing the evidence that would support the kind of decision related to the management of disturbance. Now, you are involved firsthand with habitat conservation work, and Larry has has referenced the interaction there. Do you find yourself now that you're kind of in this other sphere or just dedicated solely to this other other sphere, do you find yourself still discussing the effects of waterfowl uh, or of, of disturbance? And do you, do you borrow from some of your past experiences to help any of your partnering landowners or, or state federal partners when you're talking about habitat conservation work? Does that interaction come up in, in the activities that you do now for Ducks Unlimited? Yeah. So the, the simple answer is absolutely. Um, 
It does. And it does often. And, and it does because it, you know, the hunts on the Chafalai Delta, which opened my eyes up as, a, as an avid waterfowl hunter, but never having the experiences that I had until I hunted a Chafalai Delta and then seeing what that was for so many years, um, you know, changed me definitely. And, and people that are around me and that hunt with me or that, you know, uh, socialize with me, you know, work with me or whatever. A lot of these people have to hear my old stories. Right. And, and, and it's sometimes you scratch your head and because, you know, it, and Larry summed it up extremely well as he always does. The, the thing that, that really kind of gets me is that even, you know, when it, when it started getting bad and you experienced it and it started, even after I left, you know, that specific area, but still hunted there. And I'm like, how do these birds, how are they still maintaining that kind of disturbance? But you could, but you knew it was going to break, right? You knew it, it was going to break. They were not going to tolerate that as much as it's almost like a baited field. I mean, they love that habitat so much, especially the duck, Delta duck potato that we talked about, that they wanted that. And, and you would see those birds come in as it changed, you know, and at sunset, you would see them start coming in. Well, that changed and it stopped. And they did not, when they started feeding nocturnally, they came in well after dark. And it was like, wow, okay. And then you, and then you watched, you know, I, I still always look at the, the aerial surveys that the department does and look at the bag check data and it's like, okay, you know, it hit a point of no return. And, and I'll just leave it at this, you know, reminiscing back to those times where I got hammered at these public meetings and I had these young guys saying, oh, you know, the, the ducks still move with the tides. We have to be able to hunt the tides. In other words, that was their biggest excuse for, for staying open all day is that the birds move with the tides. And they didn't, right? I knew they didn't because I saw that they didn't anymore. They couldn't because it was too much pressure. They didn't bother with it, right? And those guys never got to experience what Larry and I got to experience and a lot of other hunters that experienced it in the really good days. They thought what they were experiencing was the best of the best, and it wasn't. And um, and it's tough when you have to start managing that because, but then in the long run, you look, you know, Chafalaya is a perfect example. Would you rather, you know, are you going to, are you going to appease the hunter now? Or are you going to look at the effects long-term? And when they start diminishing in numbers, you know, haven't we lost, you know, haven't the resource agencies lost? And, and so, yeah, that's always part of it. And of course, we're always, you know, willing to be part of that conversation with our, with our past experiences. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to join, um, to join you guys and, uh, it's always good to, to catch up, Larry, on the old days and, and Mike for, for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Larry, for your time. We've been we've been chatting for close to two hours now, maybe even a little bit longer when we <laughs> add it all together. It's been fun. Well, like Larry said, we could do this for days. <laughs> I think we can just be thankful that Mike didn't start drinking wine from the very beginning. Otherwise, we might not have gotten much out of him after the first half hour. So. <laughs> I'm glad Julie didn't get home until five. Oh, no. The real stories come out then. The real stories have come out then. <laughs> Thank you guys again for joining us here and look forward to catching up with you again on a future episode of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. 
A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Larry Reynolds with Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and Mike Carlos with Ducks Unlimited Southern Region. We greatly appreciate their time and insight on this important topic. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does on this, these episodes, getting them edited and then out to you. And then, of course, to you, our listeners, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment for wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. <laughs>